Alright. I need both of these, yeah. <laughs> I need one for in here and one for the live stream. Alright, so how is that? Uh, Alright, hopefully you guys uh, can hear me in here okay, yes? Alright, and you folks out there as well. We are live streaming on Facebook right now for our normal Wednesday night Bible study. That is an hour and 15 minutes later than normal. But I saw some of you signing in already, so I'm welcome to Quest Ranch uh, Family Camp 2020. And so uh, we have about 62 people here. How about everybody in here yell hello out there? So, hello. So, I want you, if you're here with us, to open up your study guide to page 35. Page 35. And uh, if you're watching with us, obviously you don't have a study guide. But we're talking tonight about the testimony of the Savior. We've been looking uh, at whether or not we can trust the Bible. Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it something that we can put our life into, our faith into, our hope and our all into? And so that is what we've been studying all week so far at Quest Ranch Family Camp 2020. And so we've looked at a number of testimonies. We basically were putting the Bible on trial, right? And so we've seen a number of these testimonies already. We started looking at the testimony of science, we talked about the testimony of what was next? Anybody remember? Science and then the scribes. Is that right? And then the scrolls. The scrolls that the scribes scribbled. <laughs> and then after the scribes, we talked about the stones. Is that right? Scrolls. Supernatural. Then the stones was this morning. Is that correct? All right, it's Wednesday night, I believe, right? It's Wednesday night, okay. So now we're on our sixth session in the sixth testimony, and this is the testimony of the Savior. So every one of the testimonies we've seen so far, really, none of those by themselves, except perhaps the supernatural testimony, none of those singularly could affirm the truthfulness of the Bible coming from God. Now, last night when we looked at the testimony, though, of the supernatural, we saw how the miracles and the prophecies that had been uttered some over a thousand years before they came to fruition, we saw how then that prophecy begins to set us on some very firm footing for believing the Bible. And so tonight, we're going to see this testimony from the Savior. The Savior is Jesus Christ. We're going to look at really two major themes tonight. And I know this looks to be a lot longer than last night. We're just going to kind of go over some of these things in an overview fashion and just really camp out uh, at the beginning and end tonight. But there's two main thoughts. One is that Jesus is the Savior. And so when we see that Jesus claimed to be the Savior, then we'll see that Jesus claimed that the Scriptures were the Word of God. And that's a very important testimony. If Jesus really is God, if He really is the Savior, then what He says about the Bible is ultimately important. Amen? Amen? And so we're going to see that tonight. So let's look, if you will, real quick at page 35. And so here's kind of the main outline that you would follow for this testimony from the Savior. I want you to see that first of all, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus was confirmed by the miracles or the acts of God. He did things that only God could do. Thirdly, Jesus said that the Bible is the Word of God. And therefore, the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. 
That's really the, the, the line of evidence for this particular testimony. So look at that first chart there on page 35. Uh, for those of you who are watching, uh, maybe we can connect these slides in at a later time. But the chart is basically this. We have some Old Testament verses. We have a subject matter. And then we have some New Testament verses in the other side of that, of that chart. Now, in the uh, middle, we see these different attributes where these are attributes of God. And so the point is that Jesus claimed to be God by uh, claiming to be the Lord and by seeing how these attributes then apply to Him and the Father in the Old Testament, we are shown that Jesus is in fact God. And so you go through this chart and you see, and again, we won't read all of these for right now, but please take the time to look into these passages later. In the Psalms, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 1, we see that the Lord is my shepherd. We know that psalm. That's a great psalm when you're going through trials, when you're in those valleys that affect all of us, the loss of a loved one or things such as that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There just really are not more comforting words than that, to know that the Lord is our shepherd. He protects us. He watches over us. He feeds us. He keeps the wolves away. He picks us up when we fall down. He carries us upon His shoulders when it warrants our carrying. He does all of those things as a good shepherd does. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, the Scriptures proclaim that Jesus is the good shepherd. So He's not just the shepherd, but He is the good shepherd. He is attributed the same attribute as the Israelites believed to be true of Father God in the Old Testament. That's ascribed to Jesus. We see in Isaiah 44, verse 6, that God, that Yahweh, is the first and the last. We also see then in Revelation 1.17, these very words, this very title ascribed to Jesus. He is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. That's right. That's Jesus. And all throughout the rest of that chart, you'll see, and this is just a very small portion of the attributes that the New Testament ascribes to Jesus or places upon Jesus that the Old Testament proclaimed were true of Father God. And so we see that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the very Yahweh of the Old Testament. And these different attributes and titles are ascribed to Him. Bridegroom, the judge, light, he's the savior, he's the glory of the father, he is the giver of life. All of those things are ascribed to Jesus and he affirms all of those titles as well. All of those descriptions, Jesus never corrects anyone for proclaiming that those are true of him. Now, let's move on. This is a very important thing where I want us to actually dig into for a moment. Turn to Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. A very familiar passage if you've been raised in church. If not, that's okay. We're going to look at it together tonight. But in Exodus chapter 3, we see where God introduces Himself to Moses. Exodus chapter 3. This is the story of the burning bush, right? Moses looks out, he's strolling through the desert one day, right? On a horse with no name, perhaps. No, no, he's not. He's just strolling through the desert and he comes upon a bush that burns and yet it burneth not. And that's just some fancy lingo to say that this bush was on fire and yet it was not consumed by the fire. And so do you think that would get your attention if you saw that? 
Absolutely. I mean, when we see things on fire, and it was 100 plus degrees out here today, so we're very fortunate that none of us caught fire today, but it would have been hilarious for a moment. It sure would have for a moment if it happened to someone other than me. But uh, he sees this bush, it's burning, and yet it's not consumed. And so look at verse 14. Here's what happens. God begins to speak to Moses from this bush, this burning bush. God, Old Testament, right? This is Old Testament. So they don't know about Jesus yet. But God speaks through this bush to Moses. He gets his attention. He begins to talk to Moses. And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. What God does here is give Moses his proper name. Now we say, we pronounce it Yahweh. It's oftentimes spelled in just capital letters because the Hebrews were so worried about profaning the name of God, blaspheming the name of God, using God's name too lightly, like people do today when they say God blank, right? Using God's name in a blasphemous fashion, the Jews were so concerned, so worried that they would do that accidentally even, that they wouldn't say His name. They wouldn't spell it either. They would just use all the consonant letters that are in this name. And so we see it still today that when the Jews write the name of God in English, you know what they'll do? They'll do a G. You know what comes next? A dash and then a D. They won't write the full name out in respect. Now, maybe they take that a little too far. Maybe not. That's not the point of our discussion tonight. The point is that God's name is given here. His name is I am that I am. In Hebrew, we would say something to the effect of Yahweh. Yahweh. Now, again, we're just guessing at the the, uh, vowels that are in there, right? Because it was all consonants given. So we're just guessing. But that's as close of a guess as any of us have ever gotten. We believe that to be very close to the pronunciation of God's divine name. Yahweh. And so God says to Moses here in verse 14, Tell them that Yahweh, that I am, has sent me to you. So that's God's name here in the Old Testament. Way before we're introduced to Jesus. But now, turn to the New Testament. I want you to see how this is attributed to none other than Jesus Himself. Turn to John chapter 8 verse 58. If you're in the New Testament, remember you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. John chapter 8, verse 58. And if you have trouble getting there, ask someone for help. It's always okay to use your table of contents or to ask someone for help. But in John chapter 8, verse 58 is where we're turning. I'm going to give you just a moment. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is, is having a conversation with the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, alright? And He is... He's basically arguing with these guys, or at least they're arguing with him, okay? He's always ever in control. They're arguing, and Jesus tells him, in fact, I'm going to back up to verse 56, okay? To make this more like our regular church services, where I always tell them a verse, and then I back up a few verses. But, but look at verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, here's the deal. How many years approximately... How many years before Jesus did Abraham live, approximately? 1,500 to 2,000 years, okay? So, 
Do you think Abraham was still alive at that point in time? No, no. Abraham was considered Father Abraham, the, their ancestral father of Judaism. They highly revered Abraham. He's been long gone, dead and gone. 1500, 1600, up to about 1900, 2000 years before Christ. And so Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was glad when he saw it. And look what they say. They would say what most people probably would say. So the Jews said to him, verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Question mark. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, in case you're a little confused, we're going to read on. Because anytime we get confused about something Jesus said in Scripture, the, the Pharisees are always there to be confused for us. And usually they're angry and confused so that we get an explanation from Jesus. Okay, And so look what happens in verse 59. Therefore, they, meaning the Jews, the religious leaders of the Jews, they picked up stones to throw at Him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, why did they pick up stones to throw at him? They were going to kill him is what they were going to do. The reason is because Jesus proclaimed that he was what? God. How did he do it? By saying that he was Yahweh. He said before Abraham was Yahweh. And it's as if, and we can't see, there was no uh, video cameras back then. But it's as if Jesus tells them this. Before Abraham was born... I am. I am. Meaning, I am the one that is the self-existent one. I was, I am now, I will be still when you're long gone. I am eternal. Yahweh, right here. And they understood Him as proclaiming Himself to be God because they wanted to kill Him. They wanted to stone Him. This happened several times throughout Scripture. Now let me just throw this in as a sidebar. And you can, uh, you can call me on it if you're a good attorney. You can say that's, uh, uh, you can object. Yeah, I object because this is not necessarily relevant to the case. But Jesus did this on a number of times. And so when people try to say today that Jesus never claimed to be God, they're wrong. Those are people who have never read the Bible, at least not read it rightly, because Jesus proclaimed to be God over and over again. We're looking at a few of those places tonight. So He claimed to be I Am. Massive evidence right there. It's very hard to come back from, from for the other side. But look at this next thing. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. In the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 50, uh, 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 verse 5, I'm sorry, and following, Jesus does, does something. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And so here's someone who's in need of, of, of forgiveness. And Jesus offers him forgiveness. Doesn't sound like a big deal, but the Jews are there. The religious leaders are there. And this is such a big deal. They're there to help us understand. And so look what they say in verse, um, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. The scribes, this is the religious leaders, they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? What they're doing is helping us to understand that by Jesus saying your sins are forgiven, He's proclaiming to be God. That's another huge piece of evidence from this testimony. The next thing we see is that Jesus claimed that He should be honored as God. John chapter 5 verse 23, He said, So that all will honor the Son 
even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So he's claiming that the honor due to Father God was also equally His as the Son of God. Look at page 30, uh, what page? 36, the next page. Jesus claimed, and this is another huge piece of the evidence right here. Jesus claimed to be Messiah God. In the Old Testament, remember we talked about Messiah with those prophecies last night. Now remember, some of those prophecies predicted the Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a certain day. And those prophecies were given some roughly 600 years beforehand. That the Messiah would ride into, into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That people would throw palm branches down like they would for royalty. And they would yell, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. They were welcoming their Messiah. And so the Messiah was the long-awaited Savior. And so when you see the word Christ, as in Jesus Christ, really what you're seeing is Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. Messiah and Christ are the same word in two different languages. Messiah is from the Hebrew language and Christ is from the Greek language. But it's the same thing. The anointed one of God. The one who's promised to come to deliver us. That's who they were looking for. And so in the Old Testament, you see that uh, that the Messiah was actually God. Now, there's a number of passages here. We, We won't be able to turn to all of them, but I want you to turn to Daniel tonight. In Daniel chapter 7, I want you to look starting at verse 9. Those other passages, similar in a similar fashion, excuse me, point toward the coming Messiah. So look at Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. Daniel 7 verse 9. Can y'all still hear me if I'm this far away from this mic? Yeah. <clears throat> Alright. Page is still turning. We're going to wait a moment. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. And we'll read a little bit more possibly as well. But start at verse 9. Now this is again a prophet from, a prophecy from Daniel. Remember Daniel was uh, written. He was in captive. He was uh, one of the the young men who was conquered. Actually, all of Judah was conquered. Uh, And so Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, on his way back from war after destroying another civilization, basically decides to turn off and think, uh, I think I'll conquer uh, Jerusalem as well. And he does. And he goes in, he conquers it just like God had orchestrated and foretold. Nebuchadnezzar was a godless man. Uh, he He was of the Antichrist, you could say. He was not of God. But God used him to fulfill his purposes in bringing Israel to repentance. Tremendous story. I love the book of Daniel. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. One of. And it's probably the first or the second favorite. But look at verse 9. So Daniel is prophesying here. He's got this, this, um, this vision from the Lord. And he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. So he's seeing the future. And he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now the Ancient of Days is a title for God. And so he says, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to Him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before Him. The court sat 
and the books were open. Then I kept looking because of the, the sound of the boastful words, or in verse 11, which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. The beast is the Antichrist, all right? Um, the horn or the little horn is also another title for the Antichrist. But he says, I kept doing this until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And then it goes on from there. It talks about how their dominion was taken away from them and was given to another. That another that the dominion is given to is the rightful one who can rule over all domains and that is God. But he's talking about not God the Father proper here. He's actually talking, if you read all of this context of this vision, he's talking about another besides the Father God proper. He's talking about the Messiah. He's prophesying about the coming Messiah who would rule and reign. But Jesus Himself, though, proclaimed that title. He claimed to be the Messiah. I want you to turn, for time's sake, just turn back to John 4. We won't look at all of these, but I want you to go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus here in John chapter 4, he goes down to, uh, he's going to Galilee. He decides to go through Samaria. He does it on purpose. He goes away that no respecting Jew would go. He goes intentionally there through Samaria so that he can have an appointment with a sinful woman. And so he goes, and we may know the story of the woman of Samaria, or the woman at the well. How many of you have read those stories or heard them in Sunday school or at church or somewhere? All right, so this is a woman who was. Um, very, uh, what's an easy way to say this? Someone help me. She was a very easy woman. She was a sinful woman. This woman liked many men. Okay? That's, what, that's all we need to say about that. And so Jesus goes looking for this woman. He wants her to know Him. And so as He makes His way there, He goes, He waits for her to show up at the well in the middle of the day, which is also unusual. She's coming to draw when there aren't a lot of other people there. That also speaks to her character. But that's not the whole point for tonight. He goes and He begins to talk to her. And so look at verse 25 and verse 26 and notice how this, this conversation goes. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah. Who's the Messiah? The anointed one of God. Remember? I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. They, they write John's, uh, the author John writes Christ in because Christ is the same as Messiah. He's writing to a, a Gentile audience who would, who would be more familiar with the Greek here than the Old Testament term Messiah. But it's the same meaning. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So she's heard about, and she even intimates that, that, that she's, she's kind of looking for this Messiah person too. She's not expecting what comes next though. Look, look at verse 26. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. And at this point, everything begins to change. He had already told her everything about her life without knowing, without having met her um, Prior, right? He's, he knows everything about her. He's revealed her character, her great sin, her need of salvation. And then He reveals Himself to her as this Messiah. So Jesus claimed to be Messiah God. There's a number of other passages there, but He claims to be God. If He's Messiah, He's God. Look at the next thing. He claimed to be God by accepting worship. We won't go through all of these verses tonight, but just note this. That the Bible says over and over that no one is worthy of worship except for 
God. God and God alone. You're to worship only God. Several times throughout the Scriptures we see where angels show up and angels are not, you know, all um, effeminate and dainty and real pale and, and little f- fluffy feathers and long flowing dresses on. That's, that's uh, maybe a Renaissance portrayal of an angel. But angels were bad news. Angels were powerful. Read throughout the Old Testament. Read in First and Second Chronicles. Read about um, how, uh, or, or even in Genesis, how, how an angel goes into an enemy camp and one angel destroys like an entire uh, army. I mean, just a thousand men in one night, this angel just whoops, okay? He whoops them. Kind of like, you know, West Orange Start usually does for their football team, right? All right. You're welcome, the rest of you people out there. But that's how powerful these angels are. They're very, very powerful. They're not easygoing. They're not effeminate. They're not weak. They're very, very powerful. And uh, several times in Scripture we see where an angel shows up and people are so enamored, they're so in awe of this powerful angelic being that they fall to the ground to worship this angel. And every single time, what does the angel say? Get up. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. It's in some variation of that, but that's what every single one says. Now there is one angel who would disagree with that. His name's Lucifer or Satan, right? The adversary, the one who rebelled, who wanted all of the glory for himself. He wants to be worshipped. He absolutely wants to be worshipped. And he's setting up a, a, a worldly system so that he can receive some accolades and some worship. But it's going to be short-lived. It's going to be very short-lived. But that's for another time as well. But we see that throughout the Scriptures, Jesus claimed to be God by allowing people to worship Him. He never rebuked them. He never corrected them. He never got on to anyone who worshipped Him. He accepted the worship that's due only to God. He accepted worship, if you look at the middle of page 36, from at least all of these nine people or categories of people. The mother of James and John. There was that... that uh, demoniac. There was a blind man doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas? I'm not going to believe in Jesus unless I can see him and touch the scars where the nails were, the spikes that went through his wrist, touch the place in his side where the spear was. I will not believe that Jesus is alive until that happens. So what happens? Jesus shows up and he says, hey Thomas, touch me right here. Put your hand here and see where I was wounded. It is I. And Thomas worshipped Lord God. And Jesus said uh, that, that that worship was, was accepted. He said, commended basically, are you Thomas for believing this? But blessed are those who will believe that haven't seen the proofs that you have the opportunity to see. It's a tremendous story. But, but over and over we see Jesus accepting this worship and He never rebukes, He never corrects anyone for their worship. Now, turn the page. This is where I want us to, to really tune in here, okay? He claimed to have equal authority with God by putting His words on the same authority as God's spoken word in the Old Testament. He said things like this. He said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you. He said that a number of times. We read that in Matthew chapter 5 and a few other places as well. 
He says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He says in John 13, A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' words are on par with the words of Father God. The words that the Jews had recorded. The words that the Jews revered in the Old Testament. Especially the books of Moses. They held them in high regard. The first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus' words were put on the same scale as those. Now, last two, two things on page 37. Let me just give you these blanks and you can look into these two details on your own. He claimed to be God by requesting prayer in His name. Whatsoever you ask in My name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, don't read into this more than is intended. He's not saying you can pray for a million dollars and I'm going to give it to you because I'm your genie. That's not the intent behind this. In my name is the category. It's the, it's, the, uh, it's the thing that makes or breaks these prayers. It's not just adding Jesus' name on. It means asking according to who He is, His character, His nature, His will, His desire. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. It's not just saying His name. He's not a, a magic potion or a magic incantation or something like that. It's not voodoo. It's just that you're praying according to who God is, who Jesus is, His character, His nature, His attributes. Secondly, we see there at the bottom, Jesus was confirmed by the acts of God. Notice in John 3, 2 there, it's written out for you on the bottom of the page. He says there, Teacher, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Look at the next verse, Acts 2.22. I know I'm going fast if you're watching, but, but just Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with, guess what? Miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Remember what we said about miracles, about the supernatural? They attest a spokesperson for God, or in this case, they attest to God Himself. There were three periods when the supernatural things occurred in great uh, quantity. During the time of Moses, who was writing and giving to us the um, five, first five books of the Bible. During the time of Elijah and Elisha, or the time of the prophets, when we were receiving the rest of the Old Testament. And then during the time of Jesus and the apostles, where we receive the New Testament. And Jesus, during that time period, is attested as being from God by the very acts that He did. Now, look at the last page. This is where I want you to, to really, really now, really, really focus in, okay? Look at that last page. I want you to see, because this is the argument. If Jesus is God, then what He says about the Word of God is extremely weighty and important. Amen? And so look what Jesus says. Jesus taught that the Bible is the Word of God. And so if Jesus is God, and the Bible's not the Word of God, guess what? Jesus is a liar, right? He's not God, because God can't lie. I mean, everything falls apart right here. But Jesus, who is attested as being God, who's proven undeniably to be God, says that this Word is the Word of God. The Bible, the Scriptures. Notice a few things here. He gives the Bible divine authority. Matthew 4, verse 4, verse 7, verse 10. The Word of God has the authority of God Himself. That's a very important argument. If someone comes to you and says, I don't believe that the Word of God is any big deal. Really? Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, you claim to be a Christian? You claim to be a believer in Jesus? Well, Jesus thinks a lot about the Scriptures. In fact, 
He says it has the very authority of God Himself. Secondly, it's indestructible. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. The Scriptures will stand. Every jot, every tittle, that's like uh, crossing a T and dotting an I. Every one of the, of the little, little dots and the, and the T's, the slashes, every little script will be fulfilled just as it's intended to be. None of it will fall away. It's indestructible. It's infallible. What's the word infallible mean? Without error. Without error. Without error. Infallibility means it's without error. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It can't, it can't fall. It can't be broken. It can't be shown to be false. There are some apparent contradictions in Scripture, but there are no real uh, contradictions. They may, be, uh, they may look like a contradiction, but if you will study those things that look like they're wrong, you will come to the understanding that it was you who was looking at it wrong. God cannot err. Amen? And His Word cannot err. It's inerrant, number four. There is historical reliability. We've seen that in these previous testimonies, have we not? That when God said something prophetically and it comes to pass, that gives it historical reliability, not just supernatural reliability. It's been archaeologically, as we heard from PJ this morning, archaeologically proven. That means that if, if the Bible speaks about Jerusalem, and we know that there's a Jerusalem archaeologically, we know that historically it's being accurate. It's telling the truth. And it's done that in numerous places. There were some kings that the Bible mentions that people did not believe were real. They thought they were fictitious. And then, all of a sudden, lo and behold, somebody's on an excavation, an archaeological dig, and what do they do? They dig up an inscription that has that very king's name on it. Or a coin with Quirinius upon it. Thus proving the historical and the archaeological reliability. So the testimony of the stones. The testimony of Jesus. All coming together here. Scientific accuracy. We saw the testimony of science already on the first study. All of these things Jesus affirms. And He gives it ultimate supremacy in Matthew 15.31. Jesus thought highly of the Word of God. His testimony was that this Word, the Bible, is God's very Word. Therefore, look at the last little section here. The Bible is the Word of God. If Jesus is the Son of God and He says it's the Word of God and Jesus was, number two, confirmed by acts of God, He proclaims, number three, the Bible is the Word of God. Number four, therefore, the Bible is the Word of God. Or Jesus isn't God, or He's a liar. And if He's a liar, He's not God. The whole argument unravels. Jesus believed it was God's Word. And do you know what's interesting? Is there anything that can be held above Jesus? Anything that can be, can be honored or glorified above Jesus? Hang on, think real, real carefully. What's that? What? Some would say the Father. Is there, so let me, let me help you out here again. Is there anything that could be honored above the Father or Jesus? All right, I challenge you to study your Old Testament tonight. I challenge you to read through the Psalms. And if you haven't found it, of course you could always goggle it, as Corky says, Google it. But if you haven't found it tomorrow, I'm going to give you the answer. What is it? The Word. Absolutely. Do you remember where it is? Alright. Challenge still on. In the Psalms, the author of the Psalms, who is really God, right? Writing through a man, says that my word I hold above my very name. People might say that you like the Bible too much, that you're idolizing the Bible. 
You can't idolize the Bible. You can't like the Bible too much. When God Himself says that I hold my word above my very name. So the only thing that can be above the the, the, be above God, Father or Son, would be the word of the Father or Son by the words on admission here. Okay? So look for that passage. It's in the Psalms. Look for that passage and we'll talk more about that tomorrow. But the testimony of the Savior is that the word is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. Let's pray together.